We're in Zechariah as we have been plowing through this book this year. Zechariah chapter 12. This has been a theme of being faithful, faithful in the work. Uh, God used these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to stir up his people to faithfulness, and he's using them to stir up us to faithfulness as well. They let the work that God called them to languish in their day. They were called to build the temple, and they gave up, let it sit for years. And God sent these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to stir them up to be strong and to be faithful and to finish the work. And I'm trusting that God will help us to finish the work that he's called us to do. Uh, It doesn't matter what's going on in this country or in this world. He's with us. We can be strong. He is faithful, and therefore we can be faithful. Haggai 2.4 says, Yet now be strong and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. I don't know what we'll face the rest of this year and coming years, but with the Lord we can face anything and we can be faithful, we can work, and we can finish the work that he's called us to do. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 will close out this book, and this will be looking forward to prophecies of future things. A lot of the book uh, was prophecies of things that have already happened. Prophecy of Alexander the Great, a prophecy of Christ's first coming, various prophecies that uh, have already been fulfilled. But when you come to this part of the book of Zechariah, we're looking at prophecy of things yet to come, specifically the second coming of Christ, Armageddon, uh, the settlement of all things. And so we'll be looking at the prophecy here of Armageddon and Israel's deliverance, and this is a powerful chapter. And we're just going to walk through it together. I I kept the notes very, very light. I basically just put uh, the the scripture there in the notes. I want us to just stay focused on on the scripture as we walk through this passage, and I trust that God will help us not just to read it, but that God would put us there. That we'd be able to be there and see what's going to happen and what effect it should have on our lives. Lord, help us as we look at your word now. Help us as we make some applications. Help us, Lord, to put out all distractions and to be able to really enter into this passage of what's, what's going to go on here, what's going to take place. And help us, Lord, to cast our gaze upon you in a fresh and real way if there's any who does not know you as Savior, Lord, lead them to yourself, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's walk through this passage together. We're looking at, uh, again, this, this uh, matter of Armageddon, the day of the Lord, Israel's deliverance. What is this all about? And as we begin chapter 12, there's a phrase that is used, I believe, about 16 times, which is the phrase, the day of the Lord, or something having to do with that phrase. That day, the day... Of the Lord, and uh, the day of the Lord is something that comes up all through the Old Testament, and sometimes it is referring to a day of judgment that is imminent for Israel or Israel's enemies. But oftentimes, the the phrase "the day of the Lord" is used in a prophetic uh, sense of a much future, uh, final day of the Lord, and that's what we're looking at here in Zechariah 12. It is the, the that day of finality, that final day where justice is finally served, where uh, evil is put to right and the enemies are put down. This matter of Armageddon takes place. When we think of Armageddon, I don't know what comes to your mind. What comes to my mind is, is a, a world war like we've never seen it before and just a, a large bloodbath. And that's how the Bible uh, describes it. it. It is going to take place in the plain of Megiddo, some 60 miles north of Jerusalem, Hundreds of battles have already been fought at this location. You might remember the, the battle that uh, included uh, the Canaanites and Barak. Barak's victory over the Canaanites, Judges 4. Or Gideon's victory over the Midianites, Judges 7. Uh, you also have the, the scene of Saul, King Saul, dying with his sons right here on this, uh, this battlefield. And uh, one of the most memorable battles is that of King Josiah when he went out against the Lord's direction against the Egyptians and Pharaoh Necho. And King Josiah was a good king. He was much loved. They had some bad kings before him and some bad kings followed him. But Josiah was a bright spot, a breath of fresh air 
in the middle of, of a lot of wickedness and wicked kings, and, and yet he got ahead of the Lord. He went out to fight Pharaoh Necho when God said no. And what we need to recognize is even good people can be wrong, and even good people need the Lord to be with them. And though Josiah was a great king, a great man of God, he went out and God said, I'm not going with you. And he went out by himself and he fell and he died. And all of the people of Israel mourned him in this plain, this area. This area has already been soaked with blood and it's not done yet. It's referred to as, a, as a, like a cup or a basin and, and all of the nations will come there. The day of the Lord is also, though, a day of deliverance. It is a day of deliverance of, of Israel. Israel is the redeemed, and it ushers in Christ's rule and reign. Uh, I, I, Isaiah 2, 17 says, The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. So many of put their fist in the face of God. So many have said, we'll be exalted, we will rule, we've got our own plans. And God says, they'll all be made low and only God will be exalted in that day. Let's go now and work through this passage together beginning in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. Let's stop there for a minute. What are we talking about? The burden of the word of the Lord. Uh, Is the word of God a burden? No, it's a burden to come to church and read the Word. It's a burden to get up and read a few words. No, no, that's not what it's talking about. It's not that it's a burden. It is this. (laughs) When we speak of the burden of the Word of the Lord for Israel or for a certain people, we're talking about a prophetic message that was laid on a prophet's heart from God, and it was so heavy it became a burden on their heart. Have you ever had something you had to share with someone that you loved, your spouse, your child, and you say, I've got a burden, I've got to share. And you just can't rest until you get it off your heart. That's what this was. This was a burden that God laid on them, a burden of of prophecy that Zechariah had to get off of his heart. He had to deliver this because it was from God. It was important. He wants people to know this is a great burden on my heart. Jeremiah, he got fed up with uh, prophesying different prophet, Jeremiah, and he said, I'm done. I'm done preaching to you people. <laughs> it didn't last, though. He says, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. And he had to get his burdens, his prophetic burdens, off of his chest and onto the people. Yes, God will lay a burden on a preacher, on a prophet, that has to be spoken forth. And so as we begin this passage, recognize this is not just some trivial thing. This is a great burden from God for Israel that has to be communicated. Zechariah was the instrument to do so. The burden of the word of the Lord saith the Lord. Now stop there for a minute. And we won't go this slow all the way through, but we're just getting started. Okay. Saith the Lord. We're about to read a bunch of stuff that we're going to say, wow, some of this stuff is is pretty crazy. And Zechariah has been kind of like that. The whole book of Zechariah has had a lot of stuff in it that uh, it seems a little far out. And is this really going to happen? You know, you, you could easily listen to Zechariah and what he's about to say about Jerusalem basically defeating the whole world. How's that going to happen? How is little itty-bitty Jerusalem going to win against all nations? And uh, it's as if the Lord recognizes that and, and, and guesses that that's going to be the, the idea, the, the reception. And so right off the bat, he says, this is coming from the Lord. This is what I would call the, uh, the, the who says, okay? My kids, you know, one of the kids will go to the other kid. Dad said we have to come, or, or, well, uh, you have to come upstairs. It's time to eat. Who says? Well, Dad says. Uh, did he really say? Yes, I'm the messenger. Now, in our house, that's our little code. If one of the kids says, I'm the messenger, that means Dad communicated to me a burden. Not from the Lord, but from Dad. And he has called me the messenger. I will do that. I'll say, Emily, go get the boys. Tell them to come upstairs, and she'll say, Dad, what if they don't believe me? Just like Jeremiah, you know, my little prophet Emily. Um, Tell them you're the messenger. Okay, and so she'll come down there, come upstairs, who said? Dad said. Are you sure I'm the messenger? Uh, Here come the boys. (laughs) Okay, I guess we've got to come upstairs. All right, Uh, you know, the whole says who. 
Well, God just starts with that. He's about to tell them about the day of the Lord, the final day of reckoning when everything gets set right and it doesn't even seem believable. And so before we get into all the details, he says, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, and who is he? The one which stretcheth forth the heavens. The one that layeth the foundation of the earth. The one, I'm supplying the word the one, the Lord that formed the spirit of man within him. Zechariah says, I've got a word from the Lord. It is a burden on my heart. It is from God. The God who put all the universe together. The God who put the earth on its foundations. I don't know what the earth's foundations look like, but God knows. He holds it all together. Everything in the universe, everything in its perfect orbit and everything else. The one who put the breath and the spirit within you. And he can take it whenever he wants to. We just had a funeral yesterday. Memorial service for uh, John Bowray. And... Every time I have a, a, a funeral, every time I go to a funeral, I'm always reminded of the brevity of life. Just one minute, the person's walking around, breathing, everything's fine. The next minute, they're gone. You know, his sister Becky told about how he went home to meet the Lord. Uh, he had COVID, Becky had COVID, but they were doing okay. They both went in to, the, to, to get checked out and they were sent home. They said, no, go home, rest at home. Uh, it wasn't that it didn't seem to be that serious and so they went home and uh, John was fine he took a couple of walks and he was just hanging out at home and uh, Becky went to get him some Chinese food and he ate the Chinese food she said his last words were how much do I owe you for the Chinese food <laughs> those were John Bore's last words on this earth how much do I owe you for the Chinese food she said no nothing at all she went back to her office in the back of the apartment to work and he got up, took a shower, uh, and got dressed, and put on his shoes. And she heard him kind of getting dressed, and, and out the door he went, presumably for a walk. And uh, he did not make it past that, that door, that front door. That's where the Lord, who put his spirit in him, called it home. Uh, a neighbor came by, I guess, and said, hey, are you feeling okay? And he said, oh, I'm just having a little shortness of breath. I'm fine. And the neighbor went on, and the neighbor came back, and the neighbor discovered that he had uh, gone home to be with the Lord. You know, we look at ourselves, and we think that we're something. We think that we can do what we want, go where we want, and challenge Almighty God. God, do you know what's best for me? And is this really the Word of God? And he says, look, i got a burden for you. It's from the Lord, the one who put everything in the heavens that you see, the one that put the earth where it is, under your feet, the one who put your spirit in you. It's as if Zechariah says, do I have your attention? Are you listening now? You need to hear what I have to say. God's judgment of the world and deliverance of Israel is coming and it will be complete. Let's look at verse 2. <coughs> Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Judah will become a cup of trembling. And this word cup is the idea of a basin. And, and everyone's going to come, descend. Uh, uh, we can read here. I didn't put this in the notes either, but we can just take a moment quickly and go to Revelation 19 just to see a, a couple of these verses. Uh, I saw, verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And his, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it should be, he, should, he should smite the nations." And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of his fierceness of his wrath of Almighty God. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, 
the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the throne and against his army. And again, they were taken and they were slain. <coughs> this is not a pretty picture, but it is a somber uh, picture that is presented there. And you have it, uh, of course, in, in, in verse 2. This Jerusalem is, is made like this cup of trembling, this basin where there will be blood shed up to the horse's bridle, the Bible even says, as this siege is taking place against Judah and against Jerusalem. They're all coming to finally wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Uh, no one has succeeded in doing it. Many have tried, and one day they will all come. Can you imagine if you were living in Jerusalem at that time? Would you want to be there? Listening to the news, here they come. Every news channel documents their movements. They're getting closer. They're getting closer. They're getting closer. This is it. We're going to be, we're, we're, we're gone. That country, that country, not that one. In a way, all the countries, here they come. But what does it say? It's not going to turn out exactly like everyone thought. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Jerusalem's going to be a burdensome stone, and anybody who tries to burden themselves with it, lift it, is going to be cut to pieces. Uh, one of the authors that I studied on this said it was, the analogy here is like the, the uh, even in the ancient days they would do this, the strong men would have these strong men competitions, and, and they would pick up these humongous stones. I've never gotten into that. It just doesn't look healthy. You know, to bend over and grab this huge stone and lift it up, and they, they waddle over to a pedestal, and they set it there. And you go over to the next one, you get a bigger stone, lift it up, put it on the pedestal. Has anybody seen this? This is a thing. The world's strongest fat man, I mean, the world's strongest man competition uh and they they get over there and they, they they put these stones on until they come to a stone that they can't budge and some of them hurt themselves and uh i tell you what they can get cut to pieces just like this is talking about and the author that i was reading that studied this uh, said that that's what it's talking about you're you're struggling under such a stone that you tear yourself to pieces uh hernias or who knows what all torn ligaments I've done a little bit of weightlifting, not a lot. I don't mess with the stones, the Atlas stones or anything like that. But I do some weightlifting here and there. Uh, not that you could tell, but I have to wrap my wrists or my wrists, I injure my, my wrists every time. I have to have elbow sleeves or I, I had an elbow problem that lasted for a year. I have things for my knees. I've got belts. You know, when I go to lift, I'm kind of walking in there. You know, I'm all held together because otherwise I'm gonna, something's going to pop. Snap, crackle, pop. Don't want that. I understand what this is. When you have a great burden, it can come back on you. And that's what happens here. He says, all the nations, though, as it says, all the nations shall be gathered together against it, the end of verse 3, they're not going to be able to do anything with this burden of some stone. It's going to come back on them and tear them up. Well, how's that supposed to work? I mean, you got all the nations against one puny nation. What's going on here? Well, we're going to see. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite. Well, there it is. God will fight for His people. He will smite them. He will be the one fighting in this war, world war like we've never heard of, world war. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. Well, we've seen this before in the Scriptures. There have been other accounts that read very similarly to this. You've got uh, Gideon and what happened. The, the, the people that he was going to fight, they, they kind of went mad. They kind of went crazy. They turned on each other. God would send a, 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 a noise. They hear this commotion. Whoa, whoa, what's going on? We're surrounded. Ah! And then they start panicking. And then they, of course, they had allies and mercenaries. And then you think, the mercenaries sold us out. Let's fight them. These guys sold us. And they're every sword against his neighbor, the Bible said. That didn't just happen with Gideon. That happened several times in the Old Testament where there was confusion and madness and panic. 
They couldn't see straight. It says that they will even have uh, blindness. I will smite every horse of the people with blindness. Have you ever panicked where you're going so crazy that you can't even see? The whole world is just blur, a blur, blur, blur. My first basketball game, they put me in the paint because I was tall, but I was young. I was the youngest kid out there, but I was the tallest kid out there. I was scared to death. Put me in the paint with the trees, and the guy says, just go in there. I'll, we'll get you a bounce pass, and you lay up. It'll be all good. I couldn't see a thing. I can just remember going in there like, oh, oh, it's all a blur. What's going on? There goes the ball. I have no idea. Blindness. Why? Because of the panic. And here they are. The horses, they are all turned against one another because God is, is confusing them. But I want you to notice something in that verse. He says, and I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah. It's as though God has been turning a blind eye for a time. You know, Judah, Jerusalem, Israel, they have been through it in history. And they will continue to go through it until God says, enough is enough, this is the day that it all stops and it's as though he opens his eyes and looks upon his own and steps in. God never forsook them. <clears throat> don't, don't ever think that. God never forsook them, but it wasn't time until this time and he will step in in that day. Now look at verse 5 and you'll see how God delivers them as even very strategic and the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. Now I, I supplied the word as because that's really the idea of this, of this, of this, uh, this verse, verse 5. So let's read it again. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart as or like as the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. In other words, there's going to be all these governors in Judah who are scattered out abroad. And then you have those who are inhabiting Jerusalem. Now, not everybody can inhabit Jerusalem. It's only so big. So you're going to have people who are in the city, and you're going to have people who are scattered all about in, in the rest of the, of the area. And they're going to be the ones who meet the enemy first, presumably, right, as they're working their way in. And they're going to be scared to death. They're going to have a choice to make. And the choice that they're going to make is this. They're going to look at Jerusalem, see the inhabitants of that city, and, and they're going to recognize God has, God's kept this city here, you know, through the ages. And, and as, as, let me get back to the verse, uh, as the inhabitants of Jerusalem, we're going to follow their lead, shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. Jerusalem and its inhabitants are depending on God, and we are going to be as them. We are going to as well. Their God is going to be our God. He is going to be our trust. And that's a very good decision to make, to put it all on God. We can't flee. We can't defect. We can only stand our ground and fight, but we are going to put our faith in the God of Jerusalem. He chose that city, and He is going to be our strength. He is going to be the Lord of hosts. He's going to be our God. And God says, that's a good choice. Keep reading. <coughs> In that day, will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf? These governors of Judah who are scattered abroad, they're going to be the first line of defense. And He says... You have made me your trust. I am going to make you like a hearth of fire when you throw wood on it. I'm going to make you like a torch that lights a sheaf of grain. They just baled all the hay in the hayfield by my house. First they cut it, then they let it dry. Then they come back and they turn it over and they let it dry and they toss it a couple of times and make sure it's really, really, really dry. And of course, they're hoping for no rain during this time. And there hasn't been any rain. We've been watching this whole process. The kids like it. I like it. And they bailed it all up and got it done before the rain came. But if someone had come out there with that dry hay and put a torch to it, that would not have been a good idea. I mean, poof, it's going to go up. 
God says, you Judah, you governors of Judah, you are going to be like that torch. You're going to light them on fire. Wow. It says, they shall devour the people round about on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. In other words, the, the governors spread abroad, the, 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 all the little cities and villages and, and so forth, they're going to be enabled by God like fire on wheat. They're going to devour on the right hand and the left, and they're going to preserve Jerusalem. It shall continue to be inhabited again. Now, why does God do it this way? Why does he start by delivering on the outskirts? The next verse answers that question for us. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. Do you see it? God won't share his glory with anybody. And, and, and uh, hey, the Israelis are pretty high-tech with their missiles and their defense systems and the Iron Dome and everything that going on over there. And God says, when this whole thing comes down, I'm going to deliver in such a way that nobody from the house of David, nobody of the inhabitants of Jerusalem can take any credit for this. You're going to see me start by delivering tents. The people out in the tents and you're going to watch and say, you've got to be kidding. How, how are they winning? Hello, they're driving them back on the right hand, on the left hand. How, how are they winning? And then at that moment, everybody knows this is divine. This is not our technology, our prowess, and our super skills. This is the hand of God. And only God gets the glory. I love to see that in the scripture that is a theme in the scripture you know what folks by the way on that note sometimes god won't let you succeed at something that you really really want to succeed at because he wants you to know that he's involved in your life and he's teaching you dependence upon him he wants to be big in your life and he doesn't want you to succeed at something and say i have done it yes look at me he knows our hearts and I know, I know he has done that for me and he's probably done it for you where he will step in and he will, he will maybe even resist you in a certain way and make it fall out in a certain way so that at the end of it you can say, wow, that was God. I did nothing. That was all God. <coughs> he will not share his glory with another. In verse 8, in that day, I told you we're going to see that phrase a lot. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God. And the angel of the Lord before them. You see what's happening? Put yourself in this, in this time. You're hiding in Jerusalem. You've been watching this develop on the news for years. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And now... All the nations of the world are all coming in one after the next after the next and here they come and you're watching on the news, you're listening on the radio and you're trying to think, how, how is this going to go down? I'd be thinking about my kids. Are we all going to die together? I mean, kill me first, kill my kids first. Is this going to be terrible? There's a lot of ways you can go. I'd rather go like our brother John Beauray. I mean, he goes out for a walk and meets the Lord. Uh, this doesn't sound like a good way to go. Uh, you, the, the, the worst pain would not be the sword or the bullet. It'd be watching it come to you in slow, agonizing motion. And you're just picturing, first I have to hear everybody else, and I hear my neighbors, and it, isn't that awful? It's horrible. This is gonna just, and this, by the way, this kind of thing has happened in history hundreds if not thousands of times where people have, have died this way, and you're sitting here hunkered down with your kids and thinking, it's over, it's over, then someone just says, the tents of Judah have beaten them off. What? The governors of Judah, they're wiping them out on the right hand, on the left hand. You've got to see this. And you, this can't be. And, and you look, and, and before you know it, you see that God is doing something, and the Lord himself is defending Judah. Now, what response do you think you're going to have? Well, look at the feeble. That would be me. I'd be the guy down here, you know, <laughs> you know, shaking in my boots and just, uh, you know, what's going to happen? 
The feeble that is among them in that day shall be as David. Well, what was David? He was their hero, by the way. He is the one who took out Goliath. He's the one that took out a lion and a bear. He is the one that they talked about in song. Saul hath slain his thousands. David, his ten thousands. David was a man of war. And when Jesus shows up to defend his people, they're going to come out of their basements and storm cellars and out from underneath the bed, and they're going to say, let's go get them. Yes! It's going to be exciting. Now, I, I, I can't say that I've been in a situation like this. I've never been to war. I've never, you know, I've never had anything close. Only thing I can think of as I was preparing for this, I, I remembered uh, this one season we were playing basketball and, and our best player, he, I think he had some grades that were a problem or something like that and uh, various things. He missed a lot of the season and he was phenomenal. He was my Michael Jordan, and he was on my team, and he was great. His name was David White. He could shoot. He could do everything. And uh, we weren't sure if he was going to make it to the tournament. And we were just like, how are we going to win? This is the tournament. Oh, this is going to be terrible. And we're kind of shaking in our boots, and David comes in. He made it to the tournament. I can still see him in slow motion, you know. He's running in. I got this, boys, you know. Like, yeah, David's here. It was like we had won already, and we hadn't even won. We haven't played a ball, a ball game yet, but David's here. We did win, by the way. Uh, it, was, it was all of a sudden we're ready to play. Strength that came from nowhere. So here they are. The Lord, it says, shall defend them in that day, and he that is feeble among them shall be that day as David. So I, I brought my sword, okay? We got kids in this service. So I brought my sword, and if it was me, you know, I'd be like, where's the sword? Where's the sword? We've got, we've got the victory. The, Judah is being defended, and the tents are being defended, and Jesus is here. Where's my sword? Here it is. Let's, you know, I can't even lift the thing, but let's go get them, and off we go. And the Bible says that not only will the feeble go out and, and have a victory, but it says that, that go on there in, that, in the next verse, uh, the Lord shall defend them, uh, he that is feeble among them, as the house of David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. So in other words, the actual house of David will be enabled by divine help so that any enemy that is there is going to be like, that, that might as well be God because they are being enabled by God. And it says, and the angel of the Lord before them. Now, who is that angel of the Lord? We just read about him in Revelation 19. It's the Lord Jesus. And he goes before, and he ha I can't picture the whole thing. He has the sword that his, 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 his word is like a sword. And nobody even has to use their sword but you're, we're, here we are, we're running behind him. Yeah! And the bad guys are just gone. It's over. And the Bible says this. It says, <clears throat> It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. At that moment, all, and that means all, every single nation will be destroyed that came against Jerusalem. And if, if you happen to be standing there with your sword, you're just, whoa, what just happened? I mean, it's going to be a horrible sight, but I suppose a great sight if you're on the winning side. Now, what do you expect would be the response at this point? Yes! Yes, we won! And there's just going to be this cry and victory. And the next few verses, right? The next few verses should be all about the celebration and the parade through the streets and the cries of joy. And they're going to feast for days. That's not how it goes. As soon as you would expect this uproar, and I'm sure there probably was an uproar, there was a pouring out of the Spirit of God. And the Bible says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace and supplications. The Spirit of grace and supplications, what is that? It's the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit that helps me to know how to supplicate, to, to pray. He's the one who gives me uh, 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 enablement and intercedes and, and intercedes for me with groanings that can't be uttered and 
He's the Spirit of grace. He's the one that draws all men to Himself. He's the Lord of the harvest. This is the Spirit that's going to be poured out. And the Holy Spirit is going to help them see something that they couldn't see before. A few verses before, the Lord opens His eyes and dives in to deliver His people. A few verses later, the Spirit of God is poured out. The battle cry goes up, Yes! And then the Holy Spirit comes down and calms them, and they start thinking some, some, some things that they need to think and ask them some questions. And one of the questions is, wait a minute now, who is that guy on the horse? It says that he is the angel of the Lord, and he was amazing. Who is that guy on the horse? And the Spirit of God will begin to overwhelm them. Wait a minute. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadadrimmon in the valley of Megadon. That is speaking of the mourning that took place when King Josiah died in the valley of Megiddo. Why? Why at this time of victory would they mourn like they mourned when they lost their king? Because that's exactly what happened. They lost their king. They killed their king. Only they didn't know that. They had killed their king so many years ago when he came as their Messiah. They said, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Get him out of our sight. They crucified him. And now at this day, in that glorious day when God comes and defeats all of their enemies, you would expect this this, this cry of, of victory. Instead, it's a cry of mourning because They look on Him that they have pierced. And they recognize all those years ago we killed our King. I can't imagine how this might have been, but I'm going to try. Who is that? Who is that guy? And God, the Lord Jesus, on that horse, turns around, maybe takes off His helmet. I don't know if He's got a helmet. Takes off His gloves. Shows them the scars in His hands takes off his breastplate, opens up the side, shows him the scar in his side. And everybody drops their swords. Everybody drops to their knees and they say, No! We have justified ourselves for years and years and years. It was our great, 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 great grandfathers and all of that, but we've defended them and said that they were right. And they put away the imposter and he wasn't the real Messiah and and all of that is is just twisted and blah, 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 blah. And they have defied him and continued in this rebellion against him. And when they know that they could have been and should have been wiped out with the sword of his mouth right along with everybody else, uh, somehow they find that they're the only ones left standing. And they recognize it's not fair. It's not justice. Rather, it's mercy and it's grace. And it's a gift that they can't hardly even comprehend and they recognize we killed Him. And yet He still came and defended us. As He shows His hands and He shows His side, they weep. And the last few verses end on that note. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. Now don't just gloss over that as though that's some chronology that doesn't mean anything. It's very important. First of all, take note of that phrase, apart. It says it over and over and over. I was a little tired of reading it, to be honest with you. 
Okay, we get the idea. What's the significance here? In other words, he is calling a distinction about this type of mourning. The Jews, as you know, were very good mourners. They would mourn. They had days of mourning, days of fasting. They had mourning marked on their calendar. They knew how to wail. They knew how to mourn. We don't know how to mourn. They knew how to mourn. You would put on certain mourning garments. You'd rip the garments. You'd put the ashes all over. I have gotten ashes on me cleaning out my fireplace a couple of times on accident. I can't see myself ever doing it on purpose. Ashes, that is dirty. Uh, but they, that's what they would do. Ashes and all of this. And they would even sometimes hire professional mourners for a certain occasion. They still do that to this day. But if there's a big person and you need wailing and mourning to go on for so many days, how do you keep that stuff up? Well, you have these people, you pay them, they come, they mourn, oh, you know. They have the big ceremonies and, okay, honey, I got to go out for the big ceremony, kiss, love you, bye-bye. And then, oh, and off they'd go wailing through the streets. And it was more of a public thing, not a private thing. If it was ceremonial, it was more of a, a public traditional thing. He's making a point that this is not just public, this is a part you know, if you went to go mourn on the day of mourning, it's on your calendar. When you get done, you go apart to your wife. You take off the, the garb of mourning. You get a shower. You wash off the ashes. You get dressed and you eat. You fellowship with your wife and you have, you have a normal life. And then maybe you do it all the next day. Go back to mourning. See you at 5 o'clock, honey. Have the, have the meal ready. And off you go. And all. He's saying this was not some ceremonial thing. This was the real deal. They brought this home with them. They went apart with this. Their wives, everyone was involved in this mourning. This was real brokenness. It was genuine. And now these families that are pointed out by name, this is also very, very interesting. The house of David and the house of Nathan. This is tracing the line of Christ through Joseph's line and through Mary's line. Nathan was Solomon's brother. So he's saying those who will lead out in this morning, first and foremost, will be the closest family of Jesus. All those, those uh, descendants or, or, or those in the line of David. Those who, would have, who, who should have seen but we remember the scriptures and the scripture says that he came into his own his own received him not he went to his hometown what happened in his hometown his hometown said get out of here and the bible says he could do their no mighty work say they laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them they wouldn't believe him they said oh we know your brothers and sisters they're all still here with us you're just the carpenter's son his own family would not hear him and here you have it later the whole uh, line joseph's line or, or mary's line they weep and mourn and lead in this mourning. What about the house of Levi and the house of Shimei? This would be the houses of the priests. Well, why are they leading out? Well, I'll tell you why. The priests were the ones who had the scriptures. They knew the prophets. They had everything they needed to have faith and to recognize that this Messiah, Jesus, was who he said he was, and they could have helped lead the people to follow him. But they did not do that. They rejected him. They used their influence to push the people to crucify him. They said, crucify him, crucify him. We have a king. His name is Caesar, not this man. And now the family of the, uh, all the families, all the descendants of these uh, houses of the, of the priests are leading in repentance and mourning. This was sincere. And this then spread, and it says, every, every family in every place with the women apart in private mourned that they had put their king to death so many years ago. What all was involved in that mourning? Was it just, oh, bummer, grandpa got it wrong? No, it was more than that. It was a mourning of for all of these generations, how many have died without the truth? How many have died crucifying him in a sense afresh and anew? How many have died, gone into a Christless eternity because 
we're sticking with grandma and grandpa and Jesus is the imposter and we're going to go to our graves with this. They mourned and mourned and mourned like they had lost their firstborn because in a sense they had. This passage is, a, is, a, is, is, is quite a passage. And though we try to put ourselves there, you can't quite put yourself there. But I just think it's amazing as I picture Jesus having won the victory and the Spirit then pours out on these people and they begin to wonder, wait a minute, who is that? And he turns around and shows them the scars and they look upon him whom they have pierced. You see the grace of God. You see the mercy of God. You see the love of God. No anger, no retribution, no revenge, no... I, you, you finally get it, you stubborn bunch. No, the mercy of God. But I want to ask us here, will you look upon him whom you have pierced? There may be someone here who <clears throat> has never accepted the Lord Jesus as Savior. Maybe you don't know for sure where you would go, where you would spend eternity if you were to pass away. I mentioned yesterday at the memorial service, it was a blessing to know that our brother John knew Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But how about you, friend? Do you know the Lord as Savior? Have you looked upon Him and seen your own responsibility? You say, I didn't pierce Him. I didn't crucify Him. In a sense, folks, every one of us have had a part in that. Every sin that we sin was laid on Him. Every act of defiance and disobedience helped to put Him on that cross. We are as guilty as they are, and we have to see it now, or one day it's too late. These folks here one day will see, it was us. You don't see any blaming. You don't see any, any passing the buck. You see them dropping their swords, dropping to their knees. No victory celebration, just a mourning for the one that they had rejected. Has there been a day in your life when you recognize, I am a sinner. I deserve the punishment for my sins, which is hell. I cannot pay that price. But Jesus did with his own blood on that cross, and I am coming to you, Jesus. Has there been a day where you came to him and said, Lord, I want to make you my Savior. I'm putting my faith in you. If not, I, I would beg you to do so now. When we close, in, a, in just a minute, we're going to close. And uh, I'm going to give an invitation. An invitation is an, an, a time to invite you to respond to God. And I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you're not sure that you have eternal life and you'd like to know for sure that you're saved and you have Jesus and He has saved you, I'm going to give you an opportunity in a moment when the piano is playing and we're all just quietly with our heads bowed, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just stand up and head to the back and out, and there's a little counseling room right off of the lobby, and the ushers can show you where that is. You go in there, get alone with the Lord, and as soon as I close the service, I'll come in and follow and show you from the Bible how you can know for sure that Jesus, the one that you pierced, can be the one who forgives you today. Before we do that, I also want to ask you, Christian, you've taken Jesus as your Savior. And he has saved your soul, but I have a, a words for us as well. Will you look upon him whom you have pierced afresh and anew? And will you recognize all that he has done for you? Will you look at his eyes as he turns around and shows the pierced, uh, the, 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 the pierced hands and his feet and his side? I want to ask you this question. Is there something that you are living in right now as a Christian that you have no business being a part of that was nailed to the cross? Is that only added anguish and pain to the one who died for you? Is there something that you are right now living in, struggling with, that you need to relinquish and walk away from? Will you look in his eyes? Will you look at his hands and his feet? And will you recognize the victory that he's given you and will you say, Lord, I don't want this sin anymore. I want to live as a child of God, walking with you in love and fellowship with you. Will you mourn now of that sin? Well, folks, we are on the victory side. 
But in this case, victory meant some tears because they saw that the victory came at such a cost, the cost of Jesus Christ and his blood, and we need to not forget that price. Let's have heads bowed nice clothes as we finish with a time of invitation. <clears throat> in just a moment, the piano is going to play softly, and you just do what God is telling you to do. <clears throat> if you're not sure that you're saved, I'm going to give you an opportunity. No one's looking around. This is between you and the Lord. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It's going to be you and the Lord one day. You're not going to care what anybody else thinks. I'm going to give you an opportunity. As soon as that piano plays, you can just stand up, head to the back, and there's a counseling room right off the lobby. Someone will take you there, and we'd like to take a Bible and show you how you can know Jesus as your Savior. Andrew will begin to play. If you're not sure you're saved, now is the time to respond. Will you come to him? Will you look on him, the victor, the one who has given everything for you? Will you give yourself to him, the one that you've pierced, the one that you have rejected? Will you put your faith in him? He wants to save you. You can just stand to your feet if you'd like to get this matter settled and head to the back. One of us will talk to you in the counseling room and show you how you can be saved. Christian, is there something that you have on your heart that you don't want to have as you look in his eyes as you look at his hands and his feet will you relinquish that will you give that to him will you confess that sin and accept his grace and goodness and victory in your life of God I come the songwriter said amen we're going to close in a word of prayer and then we have a couple of um, members to bring in and it's always exciting to have folks join our church so we want to do that before we dismiss but again if you have a need in your heart don't walk away with that need unmet uh, I, I give uh, my my time to preaching of the word but not just the preaching of the word but then to help you with the, with the needs that you have. And so if you need to be saved or have questions, let me, let me know and I, I'd love to help you with that. Let's stand and actually don't stand. We're going to stand in a minute. We're going to have the, the new members come just a moment, but let's pray first. Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond to you, to see you, our victor, our savior, whom we have pierced like we haven't seen in a while. May we draw close to you. And if anyone doesn't know you, Lord, would you bring them to yourself, I pray. Help us to respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen.